0: This podcast is brought to you by the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Welcome to the War Studies Podcast. My name is Kirk Allen. The impact of the First World War can be observed throughout history and is even felt in the present as we commemorate the sacrifices made during this devastating war. In light of the end of the First World War centenary, I met up with Drs. Amy Fox, and Nick Lloyd from the School of Security Studies' Defense Studies Department to discuss the importance of commemoration and the Great War's influence on the future of warfare. Let's hear what they had to say. Welcome to the War Studies Podcast. Can you introduce yourselves for us?
1: I'm Dr. Amy Fox. I'm a lecturer in Defense Studies here at the Defense Studies Department. Hi,
2: I'm uh, Dr. Nick Lloyd. I'm a reader in military and imperial history here at Shrivenham as well.
0: Excellent. Thank you for joining us. As we look back 100 years ago to the First World War, what do you believe is the importance of remembrance and commemoration of the past?
1: The importance of remembrance and commemoration, for me, in the context of the centenary, I think gives people the opportunity to kind of revisit and reconsider certain narratives that have sprung up, particularly around the First World War. Um, And I think what we've seen over the last years in particular is that those narratives have kind of been repurposed I think informing a kind of individual and, and collective identities which our colleague Helen McCartney is, has done a lot of research on. I think what's been particularly striking has been how different nations and different cultures have approached the centenary um, and these are all influenced I think by different trends whether that's diplomatic, political, social and um, and cultural but I think what's been really clear to me is just how contentious and politicized um, a lot of the remembrance and commemorative activities um, have been both nationally and transnationally
2: yeah I think it's it's just interesting to see how it's developed how the uh, certainly the official remembrance program has changed and developed and obviously the inclusion of amion uh, you know a few months ago um, to uh, Bring the hundred days, the sort of final period of the war, very much into focus, which was initially was not really going to be part of the the program at all. Um, but it's also been really interesting just to see how many people are involved, um, the interest it still has, the power that the war still has across the country, and obviously you've seen all kinds of different things from, you know, plays and documentaries, and radio programs, and local events across the country, art, you know, art installations. We've obviously had the the various events at the Tower of London, the poppies, and the candles. There's been a whole range of things, which certainly as a um, you know, beyond what I consider to be part of the war. You know, it just gives you some kind of understanding about how the war still impacts all kinds of people that are interested in all kinds of aspects of it. So it retains its great power I think and that's certainly been one of the things that I've taken from from the last four years
1: I just want to add to that, I think um, as Nick said, the the poppies at the Tower of London um, and things like We're Here Because We're Here, which was to mark um, the centenary of the Battle of the Song with just actors dressed in uniform interacting with the general public and I think although some of the artistic responses to the centenary have been subject to a degree of criticism um I think actually they have enabled people to engage and interact with history in a really meaningful way. Um, And I think actually those more artistic and cultural interventions um, have brought commemoration to life, not necessarily in a jingoistic way, but in quite a a sensitive way that really prioritises and emphasises the humanity and the human aspect of of the war, whether that's on the home front or in in active theatres of operations.
0: It is often said that the past speaks to the present. What key lessons can we draw from the Great War today?
2: Well, beware the Balkans. Don't go anywhere near them. Um, I I think it's very difficult. I mean, obviously the world of 1914 is very very different from today. But I think people have, you know, you can see them trying to stretch history out of its context and talk about, you know almost like the kind of nuclear trigger in the 1960s that uh, civilization is very fragile and uh, you know a few people or a few kind of crazy events can upturn everything. And you do see that in 1914. It does bring one world to an end and the beginning of another world, I suppose. Um, so I think people are trying to perhaps make links to contemporary political uh, problems or political issues, which I'm not sure always work very well. I think you always have to see the first war in its own context. But I think it definitely seems to still speak to people about Um, how easily cataclysmic events can happen. And, you know, it it really gives us all pause to just, you know, consider that as a, you know, a lot of the things we take for granted aren't necessarily so, and it it underlines that great historical idea that they do things differently in the past. And just because things are the way they are now doesn't mean they're always going to be that way. So, yeah, I think it's a sort of mixed set of uh, assessments and emotions I feel about that.
1: Yeah, I, I second that. I think it's it's really seductive to try and draw a straight line between you know, the Great War and the lessons that we can draw from it and how that um, influences the world today. I think for me, you know, for kind of drawing on my own research about learning and innovation um, in the military context, this is quite a timeless piece, I think, but it's always it always needs to be seen in the context of the armed force that you're talking about. But having said that, You know, I think if we look at the armed forces in the Great War and the armed forces of today, then of course we can draw some parallels in terms of we need to see armed forces as part of society rather than a part from society. Um, And I think that that's something that was very evident in the First World War, particularly when you have the, particularly the citizen army. Um, And I think that kind of resonates in a way with current calls for, Um, within the armed forces that people actually empathize rather than sympathize with the armed forces and that kind of ties into I think some of the narratives that have emerged in the context of the first world War, which is where soldiers are are seen as as victims the whole lines led by donkeys um, narrative for example and I think we still have kind of vestiges of that today Um, the second point really in terms of key lessons and this is directly related to my own research is that we need to really problematize concepts like learning and innovation rather than seeing them as slogans and something that um, can be done very very easily Um, and I think you know we need to see these things as a process that combines people structures and culture so for me that's definitely something sort of working here at the staff college um, that I see on a day-to-day basis um, and it's kind of Uh, a negative and a positive being a historian seeing those same kinds of questions and those same problems a hundred years ago actually still not being necessarily solved today.
0: So I also wanted to ask, how did the First World War and its aftermath influence the future of warfare?
2: Well, it has an enormous range of factors. I mean, you know, you've got the growth, say, for example, the growth of air power um, in the 1920s, and that is directly related to a kind of reaction against the First World War. The indecisive nature of trench warfare fuels the kind of ideas of strategic bombardment and, you know, the bomber fleets that will devastate Europe and Japan in the Second World War are really fundamentally a reaction or a kind of a search for a new way of winning that does not involve the slaughter and the indecisive trench warfare that we've spoken about. So, you know, you've got air power, you've also got the, you know, the role of armour, but you also got the role of citizen forces and, and total war that that emerges from the First World War and then is if you like taken to new heights or new depths I suppose in the Second World War. So the First World War is the it's a, it's a kind of if you can use a kind of modern parlance or modern military phrase it's a revolution in military affairs. It changes everything. After 1918 you have to change radically how you are you are doing everything with military from ground forces to air forces to maritime forces. So it's, you know it changes everything. It brings all of those great developments of the 19th century, railroads, the internal combustion engine, machine guns, modern quick-firing artillery, again, air power. It sort of brings them all together to create modern warfare.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The, the technological change in particular that you see in the First World War has you know, resounding effects. You know, Into the interwar years, the Second World War and beyond, you know, whether we're thinking here, as Nick's pointed out, armour gas warfare um, techniques and artillery um, and what we might call technologies of bureaucracy so statistical forecasting etc these technologies are developed by the military but what I think is really interesting is that they're often co-created with civilians outside of the military as well Um, and I think for me another um, way in which the First World War influences the future of warfare in its broadest sense is that you have Almost a renegotiation of the relationship between the state and civil society after the First World War, um, and I think you see very much these kind of attempts by the by civil society who sacrificed a lot for the state actually. I suppose, um, voicing a degree of scepticism about state involvement um, in their lives, which was a big part um, in the First World War. And I think, you know, if we then look forward into to the modern age, you have uh, the Armed Forces' covenant about trying to protect the rights of veterans and service personnel, ensure they're treated fairly. Um, and it's hard not to kind of read back and see some of those... Um, similarities or dissimilarities um, in how the relationship between the state and civil society played out. Um, I think that the First World War, as Nick's pointed out, you know, this is a revolution and it does lead to a lot of introspection and soul searching, I think, not just in the British armed forces after the First World War, but other armed forces, other belligerents who are involved. And for Britain, you certainly see a lot of experimentation. You see this desire to perhaps fight the next war with machinery rather than necessarily manpower. And again, you have those resonances, those ripples with what we're perhaps seeing today in terms of military chiefs looking to AI, cyber drones as a way of perhaps minimising the human aspect um, on the battlefield. So I think we're seeing those kind of ripple effects um, in in the contemporary environment today.
0: How did the First World War pave a way to new conflicts in the international system.
2: Well, this has certainly been one of the great um, points of debate about the war, how it ended, and of course the controversy over the Treaty of Versailles and the allegedly kind of vindictive treatment of Germany. So the narrative goes directly caused the Second World War. I think the problem with the First World War is in some ways is it finishes on the Western Front on 11th of November, 1918, but it doesn't really finish anywhere else. You see fighting in the Middle East going on into the 1920s. You obviously, the situation in the Eastern Front is incredibly fluid. Um, as new states rise, old empires fall, and you have this this great um, series of ethnic problems, of pogroms against Jewish people in the East, and, and obviously you have the fallout from the Russian Revolution um, and the Russian following the Civil War. So the violence on the Eastern Front does not end in nineteen eighteen. It just moves into a different phase. So the problem with the peacemakers in at Versailles is they are trying to remake a world that is busy being remade on the ground. and that kind of carnage and, and slaughter is really beyond their control. So the first world war, it'd say it ends on the Western Front, but it just spirals and spirals and spirals into, you know, another decade of fighting, so it never really ends, and I think that's the great, in some ways, one of the great problems with it is it just seems to keep burning, it keeps fire on those areas, and of course that contributes to the rise of Hitler, the Holocaust, and so on.
1: Absolutely, I think um, it's it's. I suppose a lot of the literature around around war has always been about how wars start. Um, not so much about the difficulties of when wars end and almost the the war for for demobilisation afterwards. Um, The fact is, the 11th of November, as Nick rightly points out, um, only marks the end of conflict on the Western Front. Um, And we see, particularly in propaganda that was used by ISIS about the Sykes-Picot agreement of the division of um, the Middle East between Britain and France is that you can see how, again, we come back to these highly politicised narratives that are being used to fuel certain agendas. So the First World War is is seminal in so many ways. It's a revolution in so many ways, but it also, um, as Nick points out, it continues to catalyse conflicts that are more perhaps regional that have um, just as destructive effect culturally and, and socially as well.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Amy Fox and Nick Lloyd. Amy Fox and Nick Lloyd's emphasis on how wars end when answering my last question reminded me of an interview that I had earlier in the year with William Philpott, professor of the history of warfare in the Department of War Studies. We spoke about his research on the ending of the First World War and the lessons that can be reasonably drawn to inform complex conflicts in the present. I first asked Professor Philpott to tell us a little about his research.
3: To date, I've researched the war itself, but you realize after a while that the war does not end in 1918, when conventionally the hostilities end. There's a series of legacy conflicts and security issues that still have to be settled, and it takes until 1923, in fact, until the last peace treaties, Are signed.
0: What lessons can we draw from the end of the First World War that could help inform complex conflicts today?
3: I think the First World War, and indeed any long-running conflict, uh, you have to understand that they cannot be settled quickly and easily. Not only have the issues that caused the war to be resolved at the end, and often these have changed because of the nature of the war itself, but also wars bring about changes in societies, uh, realignments, uh, in politics, uh, in the case of the First World War, collapse of empires, creation of new states, and all these have to be uh, factored into a, a new security system. Essentially, security systems try to balance competing interests uh, to avoid the outbreak of hostilities in the future. And if you don't get that right, uh, you're going to end up with the situation as you do after 1918, where essentially you just leave issues that still have to be resolved. So you get what essentially is a prolonged period of truce, but eventually those issues will come to the fore again, as they do in the 1930s and lead to another major conflict.
0: What are uh, some ways that we can approach some of the, um, these latent issues that may lead to conflict even in the wake of a armed conflict? Well, I
3: think you need, firstly, effective diplomatic apparatus to engage all the parties in the conflict, Uh, you need some clear objectives and systems in place to make them work. I think the positives that come out of the First World War is a system of international cooperation. But unfortunately, we see that it doesn't apply universally. It's a system developed by the victorious states, uh, but in some ways, their authority influence doesn't reach effectively into those areas, particularly Eastern Europe and the Middle East, where conflicts uh, still continue often conflicts that aren't actually parts of the first world war but have been the legacy of the collapse of the uh, the Ottoman Empire in particular the Soviet sorry sorry rather the Russian Empire that becomes the Soviet Union and the Habsburg uh, empire leaving a power vacuum and essentially the issue is how you can either recreate a balance of power in these areas or set up an overarching uh, system of security that will make sure that issues do not result in further armed conflict.
0: The First World War truly shook the world and significantly influenced the future of warfare. Hopefully, as a result of further study and reflection on the Great War, we will continue to better understand complex conflicts and the world as it exists in the present. That concludes this edition of the War Studies podcast. If you like this podcast, Remember to like, comment, and share it wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, for more news and information on upcoming events, please visit our website at kcl.ac.uk forward slash warstudies. Thank you for listening.